2019, and it's the Oregon Pledge Center with a big group with lots of visitors today talking about two sort of springtime slash almost summer, tomorrow, of course, there's summer phenomenon, talking about bites of spiders, which we see a lot in the spring, and bites of scorpions, which we don't see that really much any in Oregon, but we see um, in the southern uh, southwestern United States quite a bit. So we're going to start off with a little bit of a historical article that um, often quoted. It was a big study, but certainly gave great angst about anyone who was thinking about treating black widow spider envenomation cases because of that single person who didn't do so well. Um, to tell us about both that paper and sort of a letter to the editor explaining more, uh, we have our visiting resident, Charles. Hi, thanks for that. Uh, so this article was entitled Clinical Presentation and Treatment of Black Widow Spider Envenomation, a Review of 163 Cases, and it was published in Annals of Emergency Medicine in 1992 by Clark et al. And this was a retrospective chart review from a single center, I believe in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, uh, that looked at 163 cases from 1982 to uh, 1990. Um, kind of with the objective of evaluating the efficacy of uh, treatment for these spider bites. So um, what essentially what this article uh, ended up finding was that um, there was certainly a, a significant difference in, um, in symptomatic relief in terms of receiving antivenin versus uh, not. And so, of the 118 patients they saw at their particular institution, the mean total duration of symptoms was nine hours, plus or minus 22.7 hours in patients who received the antivenin, versus 22 plus or minus 24.9 hours in patients not receiving antivenin. And um, for the patients who did not receive antivenin, um, they usually were treated with um, opioids and other analgesics. And it looks like 96% of patients received calcium. And I should just clarify that when they looked at their, um, who they were treating, they uh, divided up the, um, the symptoms and um, signs and symptoms in terms of a grading scale. And so uh, the 118 patients were patients who were um, grades two or three in severity. So a grade one in severity was a patient who was asymptomatic and had normal vital signs and might just have had some local pain at the envenomation site. And then grades two and three were more severe with grade three uh, mainly being reserved for patients who had uh, abnormal vital signs. Um, so uh, for me, I'm not sure what kind of specifics you would like to get into, but um, it did sort of confirm that calcium gluconate is probably not effective. And um, it's prudent to treat these patients with antivenin. However, uh, there was one case and this is debated in the letter to the editor, um, that did not go very well. It was a patient with a history of asthma, I believe, who received the antivenin and who had refractory anaphylaxis. Um, it didn't respond apparently to epinephrine and this patient actually died. And then the letter to the editor, uh, which to me looks like it was written many years later in 2014. Do I have that correct? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So um, in the letter to the editor, a pharmacist wrote in, uh, Dr. Thomas, and said that the death that was reported in the original article 
that was actually a medication administration error and um, you know, implying, I guess, that um, the death wouldn't have occurred if the medication was administered properly. But then there was a response that was written saying that it was administered properly. So I'm not sure, Dr. Horowitz, if you have any more historical information on that because I. Well, Richard Thomas confused. was the pharmacist um, at the study yeah. site mm -hmm. when the study was going on. And since I had moved to, to Utah, which is where the letter uh, originated from. Um, but I, and I've heard the same thing with people from other people involved in the study that, you know, you're supposed to delete the antivenom and give it IV. Mm -hmm. And this one case was given to someone who, as a baseline, had allergic issues and uh, he had asthma undiluted as an intravenous injection. And then perhaps elements of the said there was another person who also died in a separate incident that's allegedly for somewhere else. So this has given people great pause in that here's a product that makes your pain go away, but so does morphine and other analgesics. And here's a antidote where when it works, it's great because most people get better within an hour or two. But one out of whatever it is, 50 or 60, eventually would So purified product, it's a lot of uh, proteins, including the IgG molecule of the horse itself against the, uh, the alpha-lactic toxin, the, uh, the venom in the uh, spider. Um, and um, the router was given, and the timing of its giving was probably contributory to what the bad outcome there was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would have been nice to have a little bit more information in terms of like, was this patient in a monitored setting? sure if people are normally monitored when they're being given antivenom. I suspect after this article they certainly would have been if they weren't before. Yeah. Um, but it would have been nice to know a little bit more about the resuscitation because in the letter to the editor it's kind of like a he said, she said thing and it's difficult to tell uh, exactly what occurred. And perhaps like you were saying, maybe the resuscitation didn't go as smoothly or there was some other reason for the death, I'm not really sure. Um, because to me, you know, one in 50 or 60 is certainly a high... Definitely enough to give me pause before I would administer something like this, but at the same time, um, it's difficult to tell if it was truly uh, caused by um, the proper administration of the drug or perhaps other factors like not being monitored or something like that. So it's difficult to tell. Yeah. Well, I think since this was published, I think the general trend was people shied away from. Included that to show that they had quite a number of cases that they got, although it took them about 15 to 12 years or so to get them all. Um, and um, they did have some symptomatic improvement, but 
not graded by units of the scoring system, as we'll see in some of the later discussions. Um, yeah, great. I think one of the interesting things with this study as well, though, is that the follow-up was incredibly limited. They had nine patients, and they got information on another nine patients from poison center follow-up, and um, they mentioned repeatedly about looking for delayed hypersensitivity reactions, mm -hmm. and I think what we mostly worry about is something like a serum sickness, and if you're looking at such a small number of patients in follow-up, um, at least in uh, my practice during fellowship when we would treat patients with black widows, the potential of the serum sickness symptoms is what we kind of would discuss with patients, um, not really worrying about them having a, a immediate hypersensitivity as often. Um, but that really isn't addressed as much in this, this, this paper. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, that sort of reflects sort of the standard of POX research in 1992, which is, you know, many, many years ago. We're going to talk about some papers where I think they've corrected some of those discrepancies as we talk about some of the newer um, antivenoms that are out there. Um, then we're going to switch gears a little bit to what about kids? Because I think if you're worried about like a horrible reaction like anaphylactic shock, the last thing you want to do is deal with a young child who has anaphylactic shock and the equipment and the doses and everything are dramatically different. But if you look at the safety of pediatric black widow spider antivenom, published in 2017 in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, um, and the title of the article is called Treatment of Pediatric Black Widow Spider Envenomation at National Poison Centers Experience. Um, so this paper is a retrospective case review. Um, what they did is they reviewed all the calls to the Rocky Mountain Poison Center, which is located in Denver, Colorado, that involved envenomations by a black widow spider over a three-year period. <coughs> so from 2012 to 2015. So this is a lot more recent than the one that Charlotte um, discussed. Um, so they define diagnosis of black widow spider envenomations as ones that in which they identified the spider by the affected individuals, or they had brought in a picture and the health care provider had identified the spider, plus having typical clinical findings such as progressive contagious um, ratings and pain. Um, they also allowed the diagnosis as a black widow spider envenomation if they did receive antivenom and were safe. Um, they looked at calls both from um, calls from the family members of these children, uh, from their place of residence or public schools, or basically all the cases that hadn't actually been treated at a healthcare facility. And then they also looked at the cases that had been treated at a healthcare facility. And it was pretty 50-50. So 43% of the calls came um, from those not at the healthcare facility or 50 So they were able to enroll 90, or look at 93 different cases. Uh, these were all aged between zero and 18 years. The median was 11, uh, 11 years old. Um, all the envenomations occurred in or around their home, including the garage area of the home. Um, Charlotte nicely went over the different grades of severity of the envenomation already. Um, and so for grade one, uh, there was 46% were in that group. Grade two, 17.2% were in that group. And grade three, 36. So they found um, also no statistical association between the age of the patient and the grade of the envenomation. So although we might think like a younger child with a smaller um, body might have worse symptoms, they did not find any association there. Um, the most common 
common symptoms they found were local pain, including subsequent back, chest, abdomen, um, or yeah, including the back, chest, and abdomen with muscle cramping, um, which is typical of been what's described previously from black widow spider examinations. One patient apparently developed priapism, um, and one patient developed fever two days after the examination, which they suggested might have been due to a, a systemic response. There were no deaths seen. Um, and so for the antivenom, uh, 14 of the patients in this 93, uh, of these 93 patients got antivenom. And this accounted for 43% of the grade three severity patient group. The mean time for administration was 12 hours. Um, of these patients, most began to improve within 20 to 40 minutes of the antivenom infusion, and all patients had a resolution of the clinical syndrome within one hour. Um, they unfortunately did not present how long the symptoms lasted in the patients that did not receive the antivenom. Um, although in the history, uh, they state that symptoms typically last one to three days. Um, one, so of this group, in terms of the safety outcomes, one patient had an allergic reaction during the infusion, which they described as having an urticarial rash with no airway compromise. This patient was treated with IV antihistamines and steroids with improvement and did not receive any epinephrine. Um, of the patients that had not received the antivenom in the grade three severity group, two of 20, um, they had done a skin test of the antivenom that had been positive, so they didn't give it. Um, two of 20 had a strong history of asthma or allergies. Um, another two of the 20, apparently physician preference was not to give it. And 14 of 20 was just that the institution had no available antivenom. Um, so in their discussion, um, they make some recommendations regarding uh, when that some patients, it's okay to manage them at home if they're only grade one severity. Um, those grade two or grade three should be seen at a healthcare facility because they're gonna need symptomatic control in consideration of getting the antivenom. Um, for management, they suggest that all patients should get tetanus and wound care. You should always start with oral NSAIDs and then advance to IV opioids and benzos. And they recommend that you do give antivenom um, for patients that are refractory to management with the um, IV opioids, opioids and benzos. Um, so in terms of the antivenom, they give recommendations for that and they basically overall state that, and I, I'm just gonna um, quote what they said in the paper. They said, our results strongly suggest that black widow spider antivenom administration is relatively safe with mild to moderate adverse effects seen in only a small percentage of patients. And then in their conclusion, they say the use of Merck black widow antivenom dramatically shortens the duration of symptoms allowing outpatient care in most cases. It rarely results in serum sickness or severe allergic reactions. So overall, they are saying that, you know, as they said here, that they think antivenom is helpful, it shortens the duration, and it's safe. Um, and I think they, they, this paper supports that. I think it's a bit bold that the way that they phrased it, in my opinion, because um, they say that it's safe, but they only 14 patients actually received it, and one of those patients did have a mild adverse reaction, but it's a very small number of patients that actually evaluate safety of something in. And then in terms of that, it dramatically shortens the duration of symptoms. They actually didn't do any comparison with the patients that didn't receive the antivenom. We know sort of from the natural history of black widow examinations that it lasts longer than, um, than the patients that they gave antivenom in, the symptoms, but they haven't shown that in their study exactly. So I think the conclusion is a little bit bold, um, but it does sort of support, it, they are providing support for giving antivenom. 
in this paper. Yeah, no, for a good presentation of that. Yeah, that the limitations are just that this was a retrospective study, so mm -hmm. there's no a priority protocol to measure things. They did measure pain on any sort of pain score. They didn't follow mm -hmm. people up to see if they really get serum sickness, although they were able to get a few allergic reactions, one out of 14, so maybe someone could have got an allergic reaction. Hard to say exactly what that was. Um, and uh, it just added to the more anecdotal in a case report, in a case series kind of thing, that it seems to work. It's what we were functioning on for close to 40, 50 years. There's the antivenom available, and whenever I give it, patients get, uh, get better, and they're able to go home, and everything works great. Um, but I'd like to know more. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm going to talk about another study, which is the first, I think, uh, attempt at sort of a modern science approach to this. Um, it was done in Australia, and you can see the name uh, Jeff uh, Wister in several of these articles. He's a big, big venom or toxinologist, as he actually uses the phrase, and studied a variety of things. So this was a randomized control trial of IV antivenom um, looking at the red-backed spider envenomation, which they have in Australia. Very close relative of uh, our black widow. These are all lactobacillus species spider, and there are many of those around the world. We have the uh, black widow. They have the red-backed. There's a lot of cross-reactivity between what's in their uh, venoms. There's an antivenom here, and there's an antivenom that's been available in Australia for close to 60 years that they've just been using, um, you know, because people say, hey, it looks like it works, and their protocol was mostly to give it IM, and if they got better, they went home, they didn't get admitted, and that was that. There was some question whether IV is faster in onset or more, more riskier in adverse effects, and so they sought to study this versus a was a placebo-controlled, randomized trial, um, basically for moderate to severe lactobacillus uh, spider envenomation, although other papers that have reviewed this said there were no patients who were exposed sick with all that to have allergic pain scores to begin with. Um, they had a, and they were looking for a significant reduction in pain in the first two hours after receiving the placebo for the main uh, secondary uh, endpoint was looking for resolution of the systemic features of fibrosis and uh, other issues. So they used 20 emergency departments in Australia uh, between January 09 and June 2013. Um, as always, the diagnosis of red back spider envenomation um, is based on I think I got bit by a spider and did I have a constellation of symptoms that seemed to suggest this was causing cramps. They really weren't able to identify any spiders in this study. Um, they have uh, two, two or more uh, during the first hour of regional radiating abdominal pain with local regional diaphoresis. Um, and uh, they excluded children below the age of 18 who were in this group of factors. They all were informed consent. Uh, there was a national telephone number. You called up the number. You got a randomization code. Uh, the code was related to the research pharmacist. Research pharmacists had these pre-prepared packets, clips of two vials in them that looked identical to each other. Two of those, of their subgroup was of the red back antivenom produced by the Commonwealth Lab. 
However, when you do the confidence intervals, it crosses one and you do the p-value, it comes out to 0.1. So this, statistically speaking, is not a statistically significant improvement, although there appears to be a slight incremental improvement um, between the two comparison maps. When they looked at the secondary outcome, the resolution of systemic effects, um, nine out of 41 in placebo, nine out of 35, Yeah, 
maybe I'm wrong in that, that this if equine bad food versus placebo in the treatment of natural baptism, a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled clinical trial, which is natural baptism. So we know that vasoglobulitis causes a change in the myopathic syndrome, potentially, um, and treatment, you know, we already talked about giving opioids, giving benzos, however, you know, that giving those medications can be associated with prolonged illness, highly um, we do have the antivenom that was put, uh, introduced in the 1950s by Merck. Um, it is a whole immunoglobulin, so the entire thing there that we discussed already. Um, it is considered effective, but it also, again, has been associated with anaphylaxis and then those are two reported fatalities. Um, and so, and then the big thing we've already d discussed is that there's an associated variability in the insufficient supply. So if each patient has really low degree and then are getting a lot of other opioids and benzos on top of that. So um, that's kind of the issue. So they have, we have this new um, antivenom that has been developed. Uh, it's not yet FDA approved or anything. And it is um, an equine immune FAB2. Um, and so this trial, uh, again, multi-center randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial, they're looking at the efficacy of this antivenom um, and comparing with for reduction of pain intensity, um, after vascular effects. So they um, enrolled, this was in the US, uh, enrolled uh, subjects in EDs uh, of 16 adult pediatric and mixed academic and community-based emergency departments um, from October 2009 through October 2014. Um, they included patients aged 10 years or older who presented within 24 hours of addition to vascular titer medication. Um, and they included only those with moderate or severe pain intensity. Um, and they defined their pain score as, um, there was this visual analog scale, um, which whenever I think about visual analog, I think about the little smiley faces mm -hmm. and stuff, and then the picture history of them. But this one's more of a like actual like um, kind of a millimeter like line, essentially, where it's like when you're relaxing, like motion's like excruciating pain. So pretty subjective there. Um, and so um, subjects could, again, we talked about they could only get oxycodone in the last trial, um, but these subjects could receive fentanyl for pain relief during the screening phase um, at a maximum dose of 1.5 micrograms per kilogram. And But they did have to have a 30-minute washout period after the fentanyl administration um, where they were at a baseline that called VAS or VAS score, um, which is their pain score, it still had to be above that 40 millimeter or greater in order to be, um, for the administration of a study drug. So that's still moderate even after giving high weekly medicine. And again, this study medication, Enalapto is the name, um, it is hydrofloxacidase, thyroglenum, specific binding fragment. So it's not a whole immunoglobulin. Patients were randomly assigned to either receive or kind of the same volume of normal saline solution, similar to the trial that was in the US West. Um, and just so you're aware, the antivenom solution and the normal saline are indistinguishable, which is important. Uh, and then the subject, investigators, and site study staff were blinded to the treatment assignments. Um, so um, after the initial dose of 
they could give another dose as long as you study medication 30 minutes later if um, the person had failed to receive or failed to achieve clinically significant reduction in their pain intensity, so um, relative to their baseline score, so anything less than 13 millimeter decrease, um, or if they still remained at that 40 millimeters or more um, pain intensity. And then if they did not achieve adequate pain control after two doses of the psych medication, at that point they could receive the medication that he approved, that he approved um, antivenom, but that was at the discretion of the um, investigator. And so uh, the primary outcome again was treatment failure, which is uh, defined as subject who failed to achieve that 30 millimeter decrease on their pain scale relative to their baseline, or they had they ultimately received the commercially available antivenom, or they received a prescription analgesic medication at any time during the treatment phase. So after that initial um, screening phase, dose assessment that they may have done. Um, again, they chose pain as a primary evaluation because obviously it's the most commonly reported symptom by a very large mar a margin, but it's again very subjective. Um, they use this scale, which is very self-reported pain intensity, but it has been widely accepted easily um, administered measure, or, um, administered measure, and it's been validated in relation to acute um, pain, and it actually correlates pretty well with numeric ratings of pain in both adult and kids. Um, and again, it's this uh, paper-based tool consists of a 100 millimeter horizontal line, no pain, the worst possible pain. And then these subjects obviously were monitored throughout for adverse events throughout the ED treatment period, and then they were contacted um, days later, so days 2, 10, and 17 after dosing orders to see how they were doing. Um, as far as the results, so there were um, a total of 66 subjects, uh, 11 sites, um, but six of those were excluded because their pain scores were less than the 40 on the baseline regimen, so a total of 60, so much um, smaller numbers than and most people had local discomfort um, at the bite site or pain from the bite site migrating to larger muscle groups and muscle cramps. And um, as far as the most observed clinical signs, these patients had in both groups um, localized erythema and diaphoresis as well as paleo erections at the bite site. Um, the median time between initial symptom onset and the administration of the first dose of study drug was 8.3 for the Bocculo They found treatment failure was more common in the placebo group compared with the Bocculo Spider study medication group. Um, in the placebo, 24 of 31 subjects failed to achieve or maintain adequate pain control compared with 15 of 29 in the antivenom group. Um, and they calculated the number needed to treat was 3.9 patients to prevent one additional treatment failure. Um, their mean, like baseline VAS score when uh, they initially got there, pretty similar between each it was 79 millimeters for the antivenom and 73 for the placebo. Um, the dark score decreased by 40 millimeters in the antivenom group and 19 in the control group. And then um, in both groups, the pain score decreased progressively throughout their um, ED observation, but um, kind of remained higher in the control group after the treatment phase. 
Um, there were se 16 subjects with treatment failures that ultimately dropped the currently um, commercially available antivenom. Um, there are five in the study medication group and 11 in the placebo group. Um, as far as adverse events, they were pretty similar, um, three in each group, uh, and there were no deaths. And most commonly um, reported adverse events overall were pretty mild, like pruritus, alopecia, and rash. Um, let's see. Um, again, very similar limitations here. There's, you know, it is likely that in some of these patients didn't ha actually have lactoferrin envenomations because there's no like pathognomonic sign, there's no test we can do, and it's all pain based on symptoms. Again, they were unable to compare the antivenom with FDHA to the study antivenom um, because of just really short supply. And then I think a huge limitation in this case is the small sample size, six and 16 people. And I won't go too much into the discussion, they just reiterate a lot of this over again, but essentially they found that administration of this investigational antivenom for bifidobiter um, envenomation was followed by fewer treatment failures than placebo and secondary endpoints also supported efficacy and no patients, I think this is really important point too, no patients, uh, no patients developed any symptoms consistent with any treatment agent reaction, which is what we all are concerned about with the evidence. Right, I mean the one study sort of set the stage for those first years of really antivenoms. Um, maybe rightly so, Zane, actually, the 13 millimeters comes from the prospective validation of the minimum significant difference that people can pick up on a visual analog scale. So I think that's the number that they've validated as the smallest increment that can be defined as different by people looking at a, a line like that. And that's where that number comes from, I think. Because it pops up in multiple studies. So I wonder, then, retrospective, they went back and used 13 instead of 20, and the older I think it's hard because a lot of people who are treating these with one antivenom or another see that there's sort of seems to be that it's getting better. Now much of that is I'm giving you a medication and a strong placebo effect. Uh, is this going to work with the other drugs I gave you didn't work? Um, so it's hard to know. But it seems like the 
you'll have to wait. The antivenom that you talked about that you can study is an SG or biofilm. Uh, as a B2 fragment, it's not available in this uh, country, but other FAB fragments, uh, safe antivenoms, particularly severe and scorpion antivenom, which you take off not two minutes, is available from that same lab with the same SG. Uh, so intuitively, it seems to make sense. safety data, and that's been published there. I didn't include that article because it's an article that has the scorpion and antivenom. Okay. And I think the, if you use it correctly and dilute it really slowly, it's, I think it's pretty safe, although a couple people here and there do have some cutaneous interactions and things like that, but nobody's dying. Right. Um, the efficacy is you got to use a good score and you got to validate it and you can't be reusing the patient. So like giving yourself what's going to work kind of is the real positive thing. So yeah, I don't know if that's something change uh, species a little bit. Those are the black widows. I'm going to talk about one more spider species and then talk about the scorpions. Uh, this is more of a review article talking about um, something that is often plagued in the emergency department, which is <laughs> the brown recluse spider and that big sore that's on my arm or leg or whatever. There's a tail loose around here. So, um, Shayla, tell us about this. characteristics to look for, diagnosis, and treatment. So um, brown recluse spiders are often blamed for many bites that happen outside of the congenic area, so it's important for us to kind of be able to tease this out when a patient presents. So just to start off with some fun spider facts, there are apparently over 40,000 species of spiders in the world that have been described to date. Brown recluse spiders are from the genus Lithosity. Uh, in North America, there are Um, and in these areas, these spiders live 
indoors and outdoors. When they're found indoors, they're predominantly tied in clothing, blankets, and sheets, and they're actually nocturnal by nature, so humans are often bitten at nighttime, and they often bite when they feel threatened or trapped, so kind of when you're moving around at night, you can see them maybe crawling in or tapping. Some of the physical characteristics for identification would be a tapping of the chest or biting of the shoe. Um, so typically, they have a very large leg-to-body ratio, so their body's quite small, which makes them easily escape to small crevasses. Um, typically, North American spiders have eight eyes, ranging two rows of four, but these spiders, the Ophiopistera, actually have six eyes in their range of third, which are dyads. So that's this picture of their eyes. Um, and then the other classic identification authors of this paper uh, at the time of its publication was uh, taking the task of identifying any spider in the U.S. that was thought to be a brown recluse. And at the time, there was over 1,700 specimens collected, of which 368 had been actually identified through the fossils, and only one of these was found outside of the endemic area. So it's very uncommon for them to be anywhere else besides those areas. In terms of a diagnosis, um, so to make an actual diagnosis, you have to have the spider that bit you with you, which you can imagine can be very difficult. Um, in my clinical practice, anyone who has been bitten by a spider can't bring it with them, didn't even really see it, and can't identify it. Um, so the paper does go on to talk about the importance of keeping the differential diagnosis broad when uh, examining a patient with a spider bite. It gives an example of someone who uh, was found in the coast of the country presented with a skin lesion and actually had been exposed to anthrax and had a cutaneous anthrax lesion and had been misdiagnosed as a Wachowski spider bite. So you can understand that this misdiagnosis obviously is very the appropriate treatment. Um, and before I just go on to treatment, uh, the article mentions that medical reports have a tendency to report the most extreme cases of cutaneous necrosis and physicians should be aware um, that the natural course of these bites are often self-limited, self-healing, and result without any long-term consequence. So just keep that in mind as we go over some of these therapies that they've listed. So obviously the initial management should include routine first aid, elevation and mobilization of ice, local wound care, and some calmness. Other therapies that they talk about kind of at length include hyperbaric oxygen, dapsin, antibiotics, glucocorticoids, vasodilators, heparin, nitroglycerin, electric shock triage, surgical excision, and antivenoms. And just so we're clear, none of these have really been studied well in humans, and none of them have been studied with a randomized trial or anything like that. Um, in conclusion of all these kind of therapies out there, my take home in summary is that um, the cutaneous necrosis that can be associated with these bites is minimally morbid at best, and I would say rarely ever fatal. Um, these therapies are often very expensive, and 
use any system for their benefit, and some even have some dangerous side effects that would outweigh that potential benefit. And specifically, the DAPSA, which by the paper was reportedly used for many decades prior, and maybe still is, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, but it's a sulfonyl antibiotic that inhibits the polymorphism free leukocytes that are thought to be involved in the tissue process. Um, so patients are routinely getting this when they have their cytolite, and the side effects are quite severe, including hemolysis from that chemical and radioactive. Um, so not something I think we routinely do, but I would have to ask for more. No, um, I mean, it comes up every once in a while. I don't think anyone's doing it routinely. And then lastly, it talked about antivenin vaccinations, and this is kind of more relevant to the South American uh, patient population. So we see this like routinely. I think they have up to 40,000 patients per year down in Brazil. Um, they're not available in the US, but maybe it is something that they're getting done down there. So overall, it's a, just a review of kind of all the important things to be aware of and things we think we may or may not I think a lot of people come in and they, they want to blame it on something other than they had the scam or I'm not sure if you know this, but users with uh, abscesses associated with that. Um, our, he kind of vaguely also mentioned the hobo spider, which mm -hmm. is a concern here. I imagine it may be a little bit up in Canada as well. Um, he was doing the same study, Richard Vetter, with uh, Nate, one of our faculty, and actually published that, where people who were said they were bit by a hobo spider caught the spider, we mailed it to uh, Dr. Vetter, and he looked at it with like a special microscope and trying to figure out, was it really a hobo spider? And it turns out they never were a hobo spider. So this, there's sort of a myth that the hobo spider uh, is this aggressive house spider that chases after you and bites you, but it isn't. Um, it doesn't either chase you and it really doesn't bite you either. In fact, there's been a similar study where they tried to get these spiders to bite by putting someone's spiders on their arm and wrapping saran wrap plastic on them and kind of forcing the spiders to bite you and none of the spiders were able to bite those volunteers. Oh my um, so, but the uh, brown recluse definitely bites. There, the nice little map is all sort of centered around uh, the middle of the country, so places like Missouri and Arkansas and Kansas and Oklahoma get a lot of these. I'm not sure if they use a lot of Dapsone in places like that, but we don't get these very often, so we don't uh, recommend it because we're always dubious that these are in fact real aquatic spider bites. But I figure I'd, I'd uh, throw that in. I have one other article which we're gonna gloss over because we decided to reject. It's, uh, it's basically about two North American brown recluse spider uh, antivenoms that were, were used. And I think these are similar to the ones that are used in Brazil kind of goes through a lot of basic science stuff. The only thing about this I thought was kind of interesting was how they actually make these antivenoms. Um, they make these monovalent aliens. So they take horses and they're immunized with six injections of 200 micrograms of venom gland homogenous every seven days. And on day 60, the horses are bled and they extract the plasma protein that they fractionate and they digest with pepsin to get the FAP2 that's sort of a similar process to how all these venoms are made and these horse farms um, to make these uh, venoms and the digestive bound of the pepsin to a FAB 
fragment, which it turns out is what we do for scorpions. So turn our attention to those. Um, a similar review article about uh, scorpion envenomation in general. Uh, Mark. Thanks, Dr. Horowitz. Uh, as you mentioned, this is uh, an article similar to Shayla's. It is a review article, not a study. Uh, it's entitled Scorpion Envenomation by Jeffrey Isbister and <coughs> Himatrao Salubalaskar. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2014. Um, this will kind of provide us with some background to talk about uh, some of our other scorpion papers. Um, so every year there's uh, probably millions of cases of scorpion envenomation uh, throughout the world. Um, most of them are probably mild, but there are some severe cases. Um, the mechanism of envenomation uh, involves the terminal segment of the scorpion's tail, uh, or telson, which contains venom glands. Uh, and the composition of venom in scorpions is sort of, I guess, similar to that of vipers, which is to say it's a combination of enzymes and peptides. Uh, and of those peptides, the alpha toxins are the most worrisome is a collection of 61 to 76 peptides that bind to mammalian, specifically voltage-gated sodium channels. And these prolong depolarization uh, and uh, cause neuronal excitation, which can lead to uh, autonomic effects, uh, catecholamine release, and this can lead to some of the severe consequences of systemic envenomation, um, some of which can even be myocardial injury, pulmonary edema, and at its worst, cardiogenic shock. There are other toxins uh, present in scorpion venom which can block potassium channels, calcium channels, uh, and do all sorts of things, but the ones we're really worried about are those alpha toxins that tend to block the uh, voltage-gated sodium channels. Um, as far as geography of scorpions go, they're present throughout much of the world. Um, the most dangerous scorpions do appear to be found mostly in the Middle East or the Near East. Um, being from Canada, I took a quick look around, and Canada has one native scorpion species, uh, Pararoctonus boreus, the northern scorpion, which is present in southern Alberta, Saskatchewan, and the South Okanagan Valley, where I live. Um, there are many more in the United States than in Canada, though. The most uh, venomous of which is Centroroides sculpturatus, uh, I believe. Um, I've got a picture here as well for everybody who's in the room. The bark scorpion, that's right, yeah. Uh, and because we have uh, some visitors from Thailand in the room, uh, most of the scorpions in Thailand uh, seem to belong to the heterometris, the, the giant forest scorpions. And they have sort of that characteristic giant black scorpion look. Uh, they look huge. Yeah. Um, so the clinical manifestations of scorpion envenomation um, include excitation of the autonomic nervous system. Both the there's both parasympathetic effects and sympathetic effects. The parasympathetic effects uh, typically manifest with uh, cholinergic symptoms, uh, the worst of which would be bradycardia, hypotension, and bronchorrhea, but also could include things like hypersalivation, diaphoresis, lacrimation, diarrhea, vomiting, all those things. Um, and they do make note in this review that those may only be found as early findings um, and resolve on their own as the sympathetic effects predominate late. Uh, and the sympathetic effects um, 
typically uh, have an adrenergic appearance to them, so tachycardia, hypertension, hyperthermia, um, agitation and restlessness sometimes, and these often persist longer than the parasympathetic effects due to massive catecholamine release. Um, they also make note of cardiovascular effects, uh, saying that one-third to one-half of patients with a systemic envenomation, that is, experiencing symptoms that are not simply local in nature, may have cardiovascular effects, um, which can include ventricular asystoles, ECG changes like T-wave inversions or STT changes, and in rare cases, even bundle branch blocks. Uh, and they go on to say that these effects are likely caused by increased uh, vagal effects from catecholamine release. There are other effects, uh, including neurologic effects. There's peripheral nervous system stimulation, uh, which they say leads to wild flailing and thrashing, roving eyes, and fasciculations. And these are mostly in severe envenomation. Um, the scorpion's known to cause neurologic manifestations. I think they're mostly sort of centroides um, genus scorpions. Um, some species can also cause GI effects, vomiting, abdominal pain are common, um, and even some diarrhea, and these are likely due to those cholinergic effects that we talked about. Uh, there is an entity known as cytotoxic envenomation that some species uh, can potentiate. It's mostly the H. lepturus, um, which provoke an extreme local reaction with severe pain. It can present with uh, erythema, purpura, bullet even, and delayed local necrosis, uh, as well as systemic symptoms like nausea, vomiting, fever, uh, and even hemolysis, hemoglobinuria, and AKI that may, in rare cases, require dialysis. Uh, as far as what to do with the patient in front of you, there is um, sort of a grading system. Uh, they include a grading system from one to four, where one is the least worrisome, with four being multi-organ failure requiring supportive care, mechanical ventilations, uh, and perhaps even inotropes. Um, from local effects only, grade two, uh, or grade one is local effects only. Grade two includes autonomic effects, agitation and anxiety. Grade three uh, progresses to things like pulmonary edema, hypertension, cardiogenic shock, which may require ICU admission. And as we said, grade four being the worst is multi-organ failure, very, very sick patients. Um, that would be exceedingly rare from my reading on the topic, though. As far as what to do uh, laboratory investigation-wise, um, labs are essentially unnecessary to define the disease. If you, someone comes in and says, I've been stung by a scorpion, then you know that they've been stung by a scorpion. Um, however, they do recommend that it is reasonable to do things like basic blood work, looking at creatinine to investigate for acute kidney injury, lipase or amylase to investigate for pancreatitis, which can be caused by some species of scorpion, uh, an ECG, plus or minus, um, cardiac enzymes like a troponin, and a chest x-ray I think would be reasonable if there's concern for pulmonary edema. Management of scorpion envenomations is essentially symptom-based. Their table two uh, includes um, a number of potential treatments. So analgesic agents like acetaminophen or ibuprofen for local pain with local anesthetic agents being recommended for pain that is severe and not well-managed with systemic uh, medications. Anti-venom for any systemic envenomation, so that would be from their grading scale, anything grade two and up. Um, 
which binds toxins and prevents them from reaching their top, uh, their site of action. Um, for um, symptoms of excess catecholamine release, you can use prazosin, which is an alpha blocker. Um, and then everything else that they include is essentially uh, management of symptoms. So you can use inotropes for cardiogenic shock. You can use nitroglycerin if they have uh, symptoms of pulmonary edema that predominate, benzodiazepines for neuromuscular symptoms or agitation, um, and on and on it goes with symptom-based management. Um, they do quote several small reviews of antivenom and scorpion envenomations um, that showed that uh, patients receiving antivenom do better than those that do not, specifically that they resolve more rapidly. There's one small uh, North American trial, it looks like, with only 15 patients. Um, all eight patients that received antivenom had resolution of neuromuscular symptoms uh, within four hours, whereas only one in seven did not receive antivenom. And they go on to say that there's um, the cost effectiveness of routine administration of antivenom and scorpion stings has not been uh, proven. Although uh, it's worthwhile to note that uh, antivenom works best early in the course of envenomation, so waiting until they develop severe symptoms may not be what's best for your patient, I suppose. Um, and that you should probably confer with your local toxicologist. <laughs> Thanks, very nice. We're gonna talk about that one trial in a second, that was sort of the add-on in the last minute article here. But um, yeah, we, in Oregon we don't see a lot. We really only see sort of occasional, somebody was traveling here and they found one of their luggage kind of story. Um, but in Utah we used to get a fair number from southern Utah when we crossed cover uh, Utah on um, about half the month. So it's important to know about these. As opposed to the spiders where we've had 50 years of this antivenom that say works. Um, there is a no antivenom available in this country until like the last several years or so. The study that probably got it released uh, is the next paper we're going to talk about um, as a little bit of a lead up to this paper. There was an older scorpion antivenom available in Arizona made by the Arizona State University. We're going to cover a little bit of that history next. But it was stopped being made. It was a question of how it was made because it was only allowed to be used in Arizona. We're going to talk about all that in a second. Well, let's just talk about this new um, FAB fragment from uh, the Institute of Biofilm and this kind of, I think, landmark study of its use in children. So Adam, uh, tell us about that. Sure, of course. Uh, so this study is entitled Antivenom for Critically Ill Children with Neurotoxicity from Scorpion Stings. And this is by uh, uh, Boyer and others uh, in New England Journal of Medicine from 2009. And so what this uh, study did was essentially uh, take a look at um, uh, children who were admitted to the pediatric ICU with uh, envenomation from a centuroides uh, scorpion and who had developed uh, significant enough signs and symptoms that they required uh, an ICU admission. Uh, this was a double, uh, randomized double-blind controlled study uh, where um, half, the half the subjects uh, received uh, placebo and the other half received an FAB2 antivenom. Uh, the endpoints of the study was a resolution of any neuromuscular symptoms at four hours. So what they did was they, they randomized them in uh, block randomization. Um, the, both the patients, the participants, uh, and the investigators were blinded to what uh, each subject received. 
and uh, gave about half of them the antivenom, half of them placebo. And then they tracked them uh, Q1 hour for any kind of um, neurological symptom. They looked for eye movements, thrashing of extremities, things like that. Um, and then finally at four hours, uh, who, which, which uh, individuals had which symptoms, if any. At the same time, they were also tracking uh, total midazolam dosing. Uh, it was ensured that each, uh, each arm of the study, the only sedative that they were to receive was midazolam. Um, additionally, they just took a look at uh, whether they could detect um, uh, venom in, in the serum of the subjects. So what they found was that um, after four hours, uh, all of the patients who were in the um, treatment arm uh, had no uh, neurotoxic effects. That was eight subjects. And at four hours, six of the placebo group had some neurotoxic effects, uh, which is pretty good. The uh, p-value for this is 0.001, which is quite high. Um, some things just to kind of keep in mind when interpreting this is obviously this is a very small sample size of 15. And so even with a small p-value, we have to be a little bit skeptical. Uh, just looking at the uh, fragility index, which is just another way of kind of interpreting these data, that's um, the fragility index is three. So if three uh, of these subjects switched from the uh, from one group to the other, that would be enough to change the statistical significance of this. Another thing is the endpoint is, um, I think is important and meaningful, but is a little bit of squishy, you know, neurotoxic effects at four hours, right? Does that mean they were a little tiny bit twitchy? Or does that mean that they were on the verge of intubation for um, uh, profound uh, agitation. You know, and there's a, quite a range between there. Uh, they did uh, kind of divide so into some, some groups uh, of limb thrashing at four hours and abnormal eye movements at four hours. And so there was also some, um, there was a, a marked difference that the anti-venom group had much better control of those symptoms, but again, abnormal eye movements, I'm not sure that's a very meaningful endpoint. It shows that the antivenom has a clinical effect. Whether that's a clinically meaningful effect, I would, I would leave to whoever's potentially treating these patients. Um, uh, uh, respiratory compromise, which is certainly a meaningful effect, was tracked throughout, and there was essentially no difference between the two groups. Uh, cumulative midazolam dose was different uh, than uh, between the two groups at four hours. The total uh, midazolam dose was uh, 0.07 plus minus 0.1 for the treatment arm, uh, which is functionally none. And uh, 1.77 plus minus 1.58 uh, for the placebo arm. So a significant difference, but again, not tremendous. I think part of the reason this is tracked is that if patients are receiving high doses of benzodiazepines as an alternative um, regimen, then there's the potential that they could develop respiratory compromise as an adverse effect, and those patients should have continued uh, critical care monitoring. So I think what the study is really getting at is, is this treatment potentially scare, uh, sparing an ICU admission? And I think it potentially does, uh, just given the limitations here. You know, if you can get uh, very good control of symptoms within a period of time of four hours, um, then I think as an emergency department physician, you can potentially, potentially discharge the patient, but um, at the very least, uh, admit them to the floor rather than, the, uh, than a critical care environment. Um, so that's just something to consider. Um, other things just to be aware of, it's not necessarily a criticism, is this was an industry-sponsored uh, study. 
Um, that doesn't mean that there was anything done incorrectly. It's just something to know about. And uh, I appreciate that this trial was registered with clinicaltrials.gov uh, prior to being conducted, which also, I think, makes a difference. Yeah, just, um, again, they, they calculated the power to show a difference, and they didn't need a lot of patients. And they, to their credit, they looked at, you know, clinically important things and some other things. One of the things that they did, almost none of these other trials did, was they actually measured venom levels <laughs> through an assay. Mm. And most of the people who, I mean, everyone who got the antivenom had no detectable um, plasma venom in their system by one hour. So even though that's not a clinically important marker of uh, utility, it's like it, it seemed to be all bound up the same way we measure any other drug level for clearance of that drug as far as possible side effects. So, 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 you know, with this small study and some safety data, I think this product got approved. Um, I'll mention this other thing, which we didn't sort of reference. They, they did do a study, which mostly in Mexico, they looked at 100, what, sorry, 1,534 recipients of this venom, and the incidence uh, could have been anaphylactic or acute reaction was three patients at 0.2%. So they're basically able to show it's, it's reasonably safe uh, to use. Eight patients had some kind of serum sickness, mostly just a rash. Uh, no one had a full-blown serum sickness with myalgias and fevers. So out of the U.S. studies seem to show it's safe. In U.S. studies shows that you can maybe avoid transporting these patients to an ICU across the state of Arizona or wherever else they were um, as a result of this. Some would say, great, we've got an answer, but unfortunately the price of this skyrocketed and a bunch of other sort of political, socioeconomic, and other things all intervened to make the availability of Anastor not so uh, easy. We know we've treated a few patients in Utah, and we've heard the hospitals billed for like $150,000 for these three vials of Anastorp, which is the uniform dose um, in adults and children. Most of them can treat children because adults can skip right through the clinical phase. Yeah, so from my experience in Arizona and seeing these patients, um, historically what would happen, because it, it primarily you're going to have the, um, and the grading is a little bit different in the US than what was in the paper for international. Um, so you only treat grade three or four, so that is um, either the autonomic dysfunction or the neuromuscular is grade three, and then if you have both, it's a grade four, which is primarily only going to appear in young children um, under the age of six or even more likely under the age of two, although you can have some level of an adult. Um, but historically, these uh, children would end up getting a very large doses of benzodiazepines and usually fentanyl and end up needing to be intubated um, and having an ICU stay for um, at least you know, 24, 48 hours. And with the antivenom, it's absolutely they get treated even if they need a second dose, but they're going home within six hours, um, if not sooner. Um, and it's very, very obvious how quickly it has that impact. Um, the roving eye movements are one of the things that it's actually very easy to help see that this, the patient is getting better because they keep their eyes closed um, because they, the eyes don't move like in parallel with each other, mm. which may causes a lot of like nausea, um, you know, motion sickness essentially. And so one of the easy ways you can tell that the patient is 
starting to get better early on is that they'll start to actually open their eyes a little bit more. Um, it's a little bit less easy. You know, are they flailing as hard as they were before or not? Um, are they as sweaty as they were before? Because there's, you know, secretions. Um, and one of the other things that ends up happening is they do get a lot of hypertrophium inhaled to help drive some of those secretions while you're waiting for the antivenom to start working. But you do end up saving an ICU stay for the most part. And some patients, if they come from an outlying hospital that doesn't have the antivenom, which is more and more uncommon these days, um, a lot of times they'll be, have a whole lot of benzodiazepines and sometimes, again, like fentanyl on board, and then they get the antivenom, and then you end up seeing that um, extreme sedation and possibly respiratory depression. So they end up having to stay in the hospital longer, not because of the reanimation, but because of that initial treatment that now no longer has the uh, opposing catecholamine surge. Um, and so they'll have to be monitored for that. Um, but it definitely has a huge impact. And then the price, so it should be um, very different than an ICU stay. And most of the big fuss that I've seen has been times when hospitals mark up the price extraordinarily. Um, but it is a few that, uh, I, it, I can't remember if it's about three or $5,000 per vial. And the general starting dose is three vials, so you know, $15,000. Um, but part of that reason is because um, if you just look at the cost for um, licensing fees through the FDA and for like essentially malpractice insurance um, or the equivalent for a drug company, um, you're dividing it over an incredibly small population of patients in the US. It's mostly only children that are under the age of six, and it's only ones that get stung by um, Centroides ulceratus, which is only found in Arizona, and there's lots of it, you know, there's lots of scorpions in Arizona, but only this one specific scorpion. So the patient population is so small that even just to break even is, you know, approximately dividing, you know, maybe a million dollars in licensing and a million dollars in, um, you know, insurance essentially um, over a very small patient population. And so it gets compared, or it was compared in, in Tucson a lot to, well, the cost in Mexico is really cheap and you could buy it over the counter. At the time, it's much more difficult to do now, but you could buy it over the counter for $20 a vial. But in Mexico, um, it is subsidized by the government and they have a much larger patient population. They have more scorpions that have the effect. They treat adults much more quickly um, and other scorpions that have the effect um, more pronounced in adults. Whereas in the US, um, adults sometimes will get treated, um, usually if it's gonna prevent a hospital stay, so if they're unsteady enough that they can't be safely left alone at home, um, then you know treating them may prevent them from needing to stay in the hospital for observation. Um, but patients that just have the pain, um, it doesn't help the pain. So sometimes patients want to be treated. You know, adults are like, oh, there's a treatment and this hurts really bad, but it doesn't actually help with the pain. So it's more for patients that can't safely be sent home because, um, again, there may be a fall risk or something involved. But there's such a, again, a one scorpion in a very limited geographical area that primarily affects a limited proportion of the population um, that, yeah, the cost just kind of goes Most of the time, it is that markup from the hospital, so $15,000 of antivenom that the hospital is now charging $150,000 for, 
where there tends to be a huge fuss and fortunately or unfortunately when it kind of comes to light um, in the media the hospital can you know mark it back down but you know somebody's marking it up there in the first place and um, you know that uh, can be a very large profit margin unfortunately yes no no thanks for that additional insight um, um, yeah it's it's like it was a all these drugs, these companies and hospitals to, 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 to administer, everyone gets an increased step up in price and they become outrageous and to the point where, well, it's almost cheaper to put you in the ICU for two or three days and just give you a load of narcotics and make things convenient, um, which is where the cost-benefit falls right now. Everything else is a little more reasonable. So much so that one of the people who did most of the research, Leslie Boyer, gave this great lecture, which we're going to cover, what she wrote, most of what she said in this lecture, in this article we're going to finish up with. Um, so I'm going to let um, Brian do that uh, and just pretend to be Dr. Boyer in Arizona <laughs> say what she feel, has to say about this, filled with wonderful historical tidbits. Uh, thank you, Dr. Horowitz. I don't know that I could properly channel the frustration and rage that Dr. Horowitz seems to <laughs> refuse in uh, parts of this article, but I will at least attempt to be the history junker. Um, so this is, <clears throat> uh, as Dr. Horowitz said, this is a lecture that Leslie Boyer, the lead author on the prior study that we just discussed, uh, gave this lecture in uh, July 2012 at the International Society on Toxicology Venom Week. Uh, and the paper is called History of Scorpion Anti-Venom, One Arizonan's View one apparently very important Arizonan's view, and it was in Toxicon in 2013. Um, so Dr. Boyer uh, uh, basically said this was a paper written out of frustration um, in about developing this new scorpion antivenom and then seeing how expensive it was and how difficult it was to get through the approval process and said, okay, I'm gonna tell you about how we get to antivenoms and what's the history of it. So um, starting, uh, the history starts basically with immunization for infectious disease um, talking about um, variolation, variolation um, and vaccination for smallpox back in the 18th century um, with Pasteur uh, developing the germ theory of disease and then that being extended to non-infectious toxins uh, at the end of the 19th century um, by uh, Kita Sato and Sewall who was the first person in 1897 to immunize pigeons against rattlesnake venom. Um, the first antivenoms um, that were used on people were developed in the late 19th century. Calmet, um, uh, after observation of cobra bites, and convinced that there could be a universal cure for all venoms, uh, injected gram quantities of venom into horses. And some of the horses survived, and they made a, an anti-serum uh, that uh, the Pasteur Institute sold. Um, but it was pretty quickly determined that you can't make a universal antivenom. Um, uh, first discussion of scorpion stings were uh, Lope in 1904 in Mexico um, realized this pesture product did not help with uh, scorpion stings. So made his own anti-serum in dogs and cured two adults and a baby and then moved on to other research pursuits. Uh, so eventually there, were, uh, there was more of a push in uh, Mexico in particular to solve uh, scorpion envenomation problems. Uh, the people in Durango in particular had really bad scorpion problems. There was what they called a plague of scorpionism in 1925, which they thought might be from local earthquakes driving scorpions into town and um, killing people. 
Um, they put a bounty on scorpions, three cents for males, uh, 10 for females. Um, and finally, there was a successful anti-venom developed in 1926. Uh, people were afraid to use it first because they were worried for horse uh, serum toxicity. And then the daughter of the horse rancher that was providing horses for the development of this actually um, was stung and treated successfully, and then it became more popular. Um, there's a discussion I will kind of go through of a lot of other types of venoms, um, primarily uh, protolid anti-venoms, um, but with interesting connections to things like the United Fruit Company, which the CIA has been connected to turning in terms of like overturning uh, governments in Central America. Lots of weird stuff happens with that. Um, but um, returning to scorpions and in particular Arizona, um, doc, Dr. Um, Boyer talks about um, Father Emmett. So there's this uh, Franciscan priest. He studied in Santa Barbara, and he was kind of disobedient and not necessarily well-liked by his, I told you this was a story, uh, not necessarily uh, approved of in his questioning ways and sent to the worst place they could send him, which was Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, there he opened a health clinic, and uh, then he started St. Monica's Hospital, um, which in time uh, would turn come to house the first nursing training west of the Mississippi to accept multiracial nurses, the first Planned Parenthood clinic, the first iron lung polio ward, and the first poison control center in Arizona. So pretty cool, pretty cool dude. Um, at the same time, there was also development starting on, um, there was development starting on scorpion antivenom in Arizona by uh, Dr. Stenke, I believe it is, uh, might be pronounced, um, who was working on, um, I think with cats and rabbits, um, and was getting small amounts of state money and kind of scavenging for scorpions to try to work on an anti-venom, anti but wasn't having immediate success. Meanwhile, um, Dr. Um, Father Emmett at this hospital, St. Monica's, um, had this moment when witnessing this child dying of a scorpion sting. And there was a uh, Mexican intern who was working with him and said, that child would not have died in Mexico because we have developed these, um, these anti-venoms in Mexico that we have available that you don't have here. And so at that point, um, Dr. Emmett sent out a written notice to the staff that said, if you're in Mexico, sneak antivenom back in. So people were like piecemeal bringing antivenom back into um, the country. At one point, Dr. Emmett is caught at the border with antivenom like in his sleeves. And there's a big outcry, uh, lots of stories about it. Um, the, the things that came out of that, one was there was eventually FDA approval to study the antivenom that they had been importing illegally um, from Mexico. Uh, the, other out, the other outcome was that he eventually quit the priesthood, became a hospital admin, married the divorced uh, hospital librarian, and was excommunicated. So, yeah. Um, finally, so that all happened in the 40s. Uh, in the 50s, ASU uh, did succeed in developing their anti-venom. It took a lot to get this done. They had to change laws to allow for, develop, for import of scorpions, because just to do the research. Um, and also for uh, the state had to approve um, processes that would allow for freeze drying so that the, the anti-venom could be carried throughout the state. Uh, it took a while. It was never tested by the FDA, but it became the standard of care in Arizona in that one specific area where this one uh, type of scorpion uh, is basically the only, the only place where that's necessarily needed. So that was continued through. So that happened in the 50s. From the 50s to the 90s, in Arizona, they continued to use this anti-venom, it was being um, produced in goats uh, with Dr. Stanky, and then um, uh, one of his uh, technicians kind of carried on his work. Meanwhile, in Mexico, 
um, the anti-venom that the, the at St. Monica's they had been like sneaking into the country, they continue to improve. They um, start using uh, pepsin digestion to make FAB2, uh, FAB2 antibodies um, while we're still using this whole serum. Bioclone uh, ends up growing up. It's a successor of the people that had uh, made the, uh, the earlier Mexican anti-venom. They're by the 90s up to like 200,000 vials a year. And we're still, we still in Arizona had this very small production of whole serum anti-venom. Um, so getting to more modern times, um, <coughs> so one day um, Dr. Boyer gets this call and it's uh, this technician that's been working with uh, Dr. that had been working for Dr. Stanky and had been carrying on the anti-venom project and said, I'm retiring and no one wants to take this over. What are we going to do? There's not going to be anything left. Um, what, you know, we're just worried about the patients in this, um, in this state. Where will they go? What will they, what will they get? Uh, and then two weeks later, there was this kind of fortuitous phone call from a documentary crew that wanted to make a documentary about Mexican scorpions. And between the work that they wanted to do with the Poison Control Center in Arizona and with um, clinicians in Mexico, they brought everything together and they were able to start this process to get FDA approval. So that then took 12 years. Um, so they, and this is um, getting uh, FDA approval for uh, Bioclone. They're sending in their anti-venom. They agree to provide um, the, the anti-venom for the study. Um, along the way, there was a, a well-publicized death of a little boy, uh, Valerie Michael Gray, um, that probably would have survived if the anti-venom had been available. This led to the FDA providing orphan product development grant to help the study along. Also, Janet Napolitano, who was the governor of Arizona at the time and later a cabinet official under uh, Obama, uh, gave a small subsidy to extend their little study they were doing to the entire state so that that could continue to provide enough uh, anti-venom for the whole state because at that point, all of the um, anti-venom that had Arizona State University had been providing had expired. So luckily, fortuitously, politically, media-wise, things had come together so that they could keep getting enough anti-venom from Bioclone from Mexico through this study to at least have something to treat the people of Arizona in the meantime. Uh, on August 3rd, uh, 2011, the research phase ended and they were able to sell uh, the scorpion anti-venom in the US market. Um, uh, the author pointed out in, this, in the meantime, there had been more um, advancement in Mexico that hadn't been able to touch the United States. The first um, venomless anti-venom, unquote, for the Loxosceles spider, using recombinant necrotoxins had been developed. Um, a bioengineered antivenom uh, was developed without the use of large mammals during that time. That was in 2012, like right as the, this original uh, lecture had been given. Um, and they had just improved on higher potency, safer products, but those still weren't able to get here because you take longer. And the political drive wasn't as great for it because it's one small area. Um, at the time of writing, uh, the author said, um, patients are still going without scorpion antivenom because now there are these high market prices, which we discussed earlier. Even in Mexico at the time, there were problems because the two places producing their antivenom were having production problems at the same time. And so people were going without even there. Uh, and the quote uh, toward the end of the article that I, I liked, it kind of summed, brought it together, is the commercial success of an antivenom depends on economic, political, and social factors more than on its potency, specificity, and, and purity. And only time will tell whether Arizona's scorpion anti-venom situation will stabilize for a few more decades or whether we, we will shortly be wishing for the help of another disobedient priest. Yes, great. Okay. We did uh, Dr. Boyer's uh, 
thoughts well there. Um, yeah, I think uh, the fact that they had this um, goat-based capcream is a term for it, anti-venom, in Arizona State, that basically one or two people were churning out like 30, 40 years. They somehow skirted the FDA rules. They were only allowed to use it in Arizona. You weren't allowed to get sick or be bitten in another state and be transported into Arizona to receive the anti-venom. There's all sorts of rules behind it. But eventually, yeah, she gets a phone call one day and says, oh, we've been doing this for 40 years and I'm retiring. And I think the closing article was, who in their right mind wants to take over this little lab with $1,000 and, and make a go of this project we've been doing for you know X number of years. And so it sort of was the impetus to bring in the uh, Mexican product that had been working well, had been studied, but needed to be studied deeper than they did. Now our challenge is, everyone's Essentially, have snake um, antivenoms when they produce like uh, sheep farms from other countries where they send the venom to the general people to harvest it. So I think that um, sums up our Derma Club for today, for June, talking about um, some springtime bites and some antivenoms and some emerging technologies. I think for now, the bottom line is for spiders, there is an old antivenom that's called Arcerum that may or may not work well, but anecdotes suggest maybe, but it's being reserved for only the most severe of the severe, and be prepared for treatment with Lipitan and anecdotes. Um, for the uh, aquatic spider bites, there are many things that you can prepare. And for scorpion, there is a, uh, a scorpion FAB2 antivenom that's available, but um, it comes sometimes at a very high cost, and we are always weighing at what point do we want step in is it just if we give it you know we can avoid an ICU and intubation and horrible suffering on a child it's mostly being used in children I think at this point because of that less so when an adult needs to tolerate larger doses of opiates and benzos in order to get through their, their endeavors so. well anyway that's it for um, our journal club and we will uh, see everybody next time in August for our special I tried to press them. It's not working. It's just, you know. Yeah, so we could just let it go until he gets back.